0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. Andrew Mason. Good morning. Eric Berry. Hey. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that's, is it Jesus Castillo Castello? Castellan. Sorry, my Spanish is awful. Anyway, uh, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Let us know who you are and why you're famous. Sure.
1: (laughs) So like you said, my name is Jesus Castillo and I'm Ruby developer. I started programming um, when I was a little kid. I was like 10 years old. Then I did a lot of programming languages, C, PHP, Java. And then I found Ruby. Uh, (laughs) And that was like the best thing ever since then and that's like seven years ago. Uh, I focused 100% in Ruby because I think it's a really cool language. I did some freelance work and I decided that I wanted to teach Ruby. That's why I started a blog. It's called Ruby Guides, rubyguides.com. I write everything myself and I have written over 100 articles in there. I have also a Ruby book. Yeah, I like teaching, also record videos. I have a YouTube channel. and really enjoy teaching Ruby and programming in Ruby.
0: You are famous. I am. Um, <laughs> yeah, I love the domain rubyguides.com. Uh, we brought you on to talk about the Ruby environment variables post that you put up. And mm-hmm. this is something that I always struggle with, so I'm really curious to see what you have to say about this.
1: Okay. And so Eric, and Eric
0: keeps to... talking about Heroku, and he lives and dies by his environment variables, I think.
2: I do, yeah. I, I overload those bad boys. You know, it's it's funny. when you, I can't remember what it was, but dealing with something with Google, you actually throw a full-on JSON object right into your environment variable, and, and it works. So, yeah, Heroku makes it nice, that's for sure.
1: Yeah. I guess we should start defining what an environment variable is for those that don't know, right? Yep. So an environment variable is a kind of global operating system level variable. So we have this in Mac, we have this in Linux, Windows, all of the main major operating systems have environment variables. And what they are is a way to share specific settings. Like for example, you can set your default editor. You can also tell Ruby where to find Ruby gems. You can also do things like tell the operating system where to find um, binaries. So when you type Ruby, the operating system has to look somewhere to find the Ruby uh, binary, right? So the way this works is it uses an environment variable called path and it searches in the path. In, it's a, the path is a list of paths write a list of directories where the operating system, whether it is Windows, Linux, or Mac, looks for these binaries. And then we we can work with these environment variables inside Ruby. We have an object called EMV, three, three characters in capital letters, EMV. And using this object, we can access these environment variables Inside Ruby. That's the introduction, the overview. I'm curious to know if you and if you have any interesting experiences with environment variables. Maybe I, I know that some people have leaked API keys and things on GitHub because they didn't properly put them into environment variables. That's one of the uses, right? you put your api keys in your environment variable because the environment variables only stay on stay in your computer they are not shared with uh, other people and that's one way that you can keep your api keys private
3: i have leaked my keys all over github before <laughs> when i was first starting out <laughs> gotten all the emails from github the emails from amazon it was an actual nightmare I
0: usually yeah, put mine in a .env file and then... But but those are just the development ones, right? And so I'll check it in with like A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right, for each of them. But that lets people know that in order to set up their environment, they need to fill those in with real keys. On production, though, and this is something that I'm kind of curious about, and then I'm probably going to be quiet the rest of the time because I'm, I'm ha- having some issues with my jaw today. Putting them in production, like I usually host on my own server. I'm always torn because if you put them in a config file somewhere on the server, then somebody could come in and conceivably, you know, if they get onto the server, they can steal them. But if you put mm-hmm. them in the environment itself, you know, some way, that usually requires you to put it into a config file. So I've I've always been a little bit, you know, whether it's your Bash RC or your Nginx or Apache setup or Puma or whatever you're running, right? You usually have to put those in somewhere. So how do you manage that so that they're secure so that people aren't you know digging in and stealing your your keys? Well, you know
4: if someone gets root access to your computer, all bets are off already. You know Fair there's yep. nothing you can do. However, yep. there is some tricks that you can do. So in AWS, I'm kind of a AWS fanboy uh, opposed to Heroku or the other services, but they have parameters within the EC2 instance, you can actually manage all of your environment variables outside of the instance. And one of the things that you can do is in the uh, boot up of the Rails application, so in like the boot.rb, you can require a special class that you create, which will go out and run some AWS commands to load in and inject in the environment variables that's stored on the AWS management side before it actually boots up the Rails application to load in all the environment variables. So there are some neat tricks that you can do around it so you're not having to store them within your project, still using Rails credentials or secrets or whatever your Way there is, but then I usually will load into the secrets or credentials the environment variables. So all throughout my application, I'm just doing a Rails dot credentials dot whatever key or whatever, or same thing with secrets.
1: Mm-hmm. So yes, uh, credentials is one way to, do, to go about it, but you still have to have the master key. Mm -hmm. So do you upload the master key file or do you put the master key into an environment variable?
4: Uh, In that situation, I would put the master key within the AWS parameters. So it's going to get loaded into the Rails application at runtime. So before it even requires the Rails app in the boot.rb, you can inject in all the environment variables that your application is going to use.
1: Yeah, but the thing is, like you said, if someone gets access to your server or maybe they break through your application, they're going to have access anyway oh, yeah. to the very yeah. variables.
3: I'm curious, Dave. Uh, I ran into this, the other, in, into this the other day. If you're working on a team of people that you need to have access to the credentials, so I'm working on a team with a couple of people, And we were using Rails credentials and then came the question of, okay, how are we going to deal with the master key? Do we check it in? Because we didn't want to do that because that felt dirty. But we also all needed to have access to it. And it kind of seems that the idea of the credentials is that not everyone needs to be able to edit it. But in this case, there were instances where we were like actively developing, actively adding integrations. So how do you deal with that? Uh, master key if you're working on a team as opposed to just working on your own project? So it really depends
4: on the situation. So in your case, if these credentials are very secretive, like no one can know them, except for the DevOps people, then I would use environment variables within the encrypted credentials. So even if all the developers have access to the credentials master key, They still don't have any information because if all of that is stored in the environment variables, then they're not going to be exposed to anything. That way, the master key is actually less valuable, so to speak, because it's really just now housing a
3: structure, a data structure, instead of the actual data. Yeah, and I'm curious what you think as well, Jesus.
1: Well, I think the least people that have the key, the better. So you you want to control that. And I was thinking also you want to control how you share the key. You don't want to put it in like on some share link or something. You want to share it in the most safe way possible. Maybe use like public key cryptography. Like there's some public um, algorithms that you can use to share secretly a key and send it through email, but it's encrypted and the other person needs to have a private key to be able to get access to your data. So if someone gets access to that email where you're sending the master key, they will not be able to read the master key because they don't have the private key that is required to decrypt that. So you need to be careful with the master key. Don't put, don't, um, put it on Dropbox or something like that. You, you want to be very careful with that and maybe you might want to maintain a list of the people that have access to the master key and things like that. Follow some kind of security protocol to keep an eye on the who has the key, how the key is shared, things like that.
4: Yeah, I think it's really only a matter of time before a master key is leaked you know, because if you think about it, like even in your CICD, chances are if you are using secrets or something, you're throwing in the master key into the CICD and then you may forget who you are restricting access to that environment and stuff. So personally, I think the best route is to have the environment variables loaded in into the credentials file. And then have a different mechanism for setting the environment variables. So, like on the CI CD, you can put in the environment variables. I know on GitLab you can. I'm not sure about other platforms, but with their runner, there's an actual management section where you can put in the key and then the value. And those are stored encrypted and you can restrict access to those.
3: Yeah, I know you can do that on Circle CI as well.
4: Oh, cool. But isn't it enough that we should just all trust each other and just
3: put everything in plain text? Oh yeah, I I trust everyone on the (laughs) internet equally.
2: What we've always done is kept kept a uh, because we use one password for our team, and we always keep our .env our rolling .env in a secure note in one password. In that way, that if anybody ever leaves the company, they will lose access to the one password, and then we know we can just rotate through them on there. That seemed to be the best solution that we've, we've used so far.
0: That's what I do for a lot of the podcast production stuff too. Yeah. And in the past, before we had,
3: before we had rails 5.2 credentials and right after I leaked all my credentials on GitHub, I started using uh, Figaro, which worked out pretty well. But then again, at the end of the day, you have to have some way to unlock all those keys or you have to like Dave said, store them in the environment somewhere. And like Dave also said, it almost seems like a matter of time that if you don't really have a plan for that key, it will eventually get leaked somewhere. So, so it, how do you make rotating keys less painful then?
4: Uh, you don't.
3: Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I get to see a non-painful way to do that.
4: But uh, another good thing to know is if you do accidentally add in a key into your repository, and then you pull it out, you go ahead and rotate it. But then you kind of want to cover up that fail of someone looking at your Git history of all the different commits. I believe there is a way you can expunge that from the history. So might just take a bit of Googling, but that is possible.
2: Yeah, we ran into that recently where we committed something that we shouldn't have. And we actually had to contact GitHub and go through the whole process and we had to run it this cleansing thing twice and it, it was a pain in the butt but it eventually worked but it was a really terrible process i hope that they can make that easier in the future
3: and this might just be some of my newness coming out but is there no way to just completely rewrite over that history in github or is it always going to be there if you like search back through the logs
2: like the blockchain once you write it, it's on that ledger and you have to go back and change all of those historical events. So that's the hard part, I think, is not changing what's there currently, but, but basically wiping out all historical data that brought that to where it is now.
3: Oh, great. I was under the impression you could just get rid of it somehow. Now I'm only slightly more paranoid about my keys.
4: There is a
3: hand, but
4: like Eric said, it's a lengthy and not fun process but I believe it is possible. Sorry, we kind of took a stray away from environment variables there, but you no, know, I think it's still kind of important to know.
2: So Jesus, you've, uh, you've been running these courses online. Tell us about your courses and, and I want to hear a little bit about the success, maybe the strategy that you've used to grow your audience and where you're at today.
1: Sure. Well, I started writing articles about three years ago, Last year is when I started getting really serious about it. Uh, I tried to publish two new articles every week. And I'm building a newsletter. So that's the little pop-up that you see that some people don't like, but it's necessary to build a newsletter. And I have about 7,000 subscribers right now. Basically, I sell my book when you subscribe. And also occasionally do some promotions. For example, tomorrow is my birthday. Uh, I turned 33, so I will be doing a promotion for my book. And oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, so I'm growing uh, the traffic. the The organic traffic is growing really fast. The last three months, I'm over 70,000 visitors a month. And I expect to pass uh, 100K visitors now in a few months from now. So I think it's getting good. I get a lot of people saying thanks for doing this work and doing this. And my hope is that I will build a big uh, library of articles and tutorials so every Ruby developer from beginners, I'm trying to cover everything from beginners, the very basics from zero, up to the most advanced that you can find. I want to build a complete library that can do that has all of this information.
3: That's awesome. I've been following your newsletter for quite some time. I actually have a folder in my email that is all of your newsletters. And I find myself going back and like looking for them for certain things. So those of I as someone who has been following you, I definitely promote that. It's definitely some good content coming out every week. Good. Cool. <laughs> now, something else you mentioned in your article about environment variables was uh, you said try a gem like Dry Configurable for internal configuration options. I was wondering if you could speak about that a little bit uh, about the gem and the need for having something like that.
1: Sure. Well, I'm not. I don't have experience with the gem. I just know that it exists and um, the general um, idea what it does the idea is that in a in an application you might want to have some global configuration settings right like let's say i don't know right now what examples uh, there are in the documentation we have a few examples for example the database documentation also has the a settings for a pool, which is presumably a database pool like Rails has. So if you're using a Rails application, you probably don't need this because Rails already has its own um, like configuration system um, settings. But if, if you are, for example, using Sinatra or something else that's not even a web application, then it might be helpful to have these settings in one place. So you don't have to have like a singleton class or something. You have this system and you know that for all of your applications, that's how you create your settings, right? And here is the the link if you want to see the examples they have in the documentation. So the examples they have a database, they have the adapter for the database, like SQLite or Postgres or MySQL, right? Just like you have in the database file in Rails and things like that. So I I don't think this reads any files, it's just like live configuration as your running configuration in your application.
0: So should you put all of your configuration into environment variables or just the things that you want to keep secret? Or how do you decide what goes there versus just, you know, in some config file somewhere?
1: Sure. So environment variables, in my opinion, are only for external configuration. So things that are coming from outside, things like, for example, API keys, that should be definitely the environment variable, anything that you want to keep secret, like you say, um, to be a configuration environment vari- uh, variable. But then things like the database, that doesn't need to be sec- secret, but the database password, probably you want to keep that secret, the, the database password. But the database itself that you're using, whether you're using... MySQL or Postgres, that's not that important that you can keep in the configuration file or a configuration object like this try configurable. So you need to make this difference between things that should be private, that you don't want to commit to the repository and things that come from outside like this. and uh, Things like I just... Um, internal configuration settings that can be public, right? the actual database type or name that you're using, or the size the size of the database pool, or the number of threads that you're using for PUMA. PUMA, you can configure the number of threads that, that you want to use, things like that, or the port, if you're using some odd port for a reason, that also can be public. So, yeah, you need to think about that. Um, what's, what can be a security problem? What, can be, what needs to be private? What can be public?
4: Yeah. I usually follow the rule of thumb of asking a couple of different questions. One, is it a private information, so an API key? Or is it something that could change between different environments, whether it's my development, a pre-prod, or the production environment? And if it's, yes, either of those, then it gets extracted into a environment variable. Mm -hmm. There's also a neat site, 12Factor, so the number 12factor.net, which has a pretty good explanation of or a more detailed explanation of the configuration when things should be extracted or when things should be stayed within the application. And it basically covers a lot of what we've said here.
3: Now, I'm not admitting to anything, but there could be a key that is mildly important that I keep in my environment just because I've had to use it so many times. Is there a problem with if you have an AWS token or some type of database secret key or something like that that you keep in your ZSH config, or Bash RC? Do you think that can become a problem and would you advise against that and why? Let me see it and I'll
0: let you know. I don't know how (laughs) I feel about
4: that.
3: Yeah, but I think Chuck kind
4: of nailed it though because a lot of times, if I'm helping another developer set up something, then I'm going to sometimes pull up my bash rc or zshrc file to show them and then right there in the screen are the secret credentials so for something like aws specifically if you have the cli installed there's a command aws dash configure which will set up a separate a separate dot file which will store the credentials within there and then it loads it into the ZSHRC to then load in those separate files. So I think that you should keep your RC file minimal as far as don't put application specific things in there and don't put secrets in there. I would load those up separately. There's some scripts that you can have to have a protected. Dot .file, which will load in those. Or if it's a project specific, like we said, use a .env to have a .env file that gets loaded into the application.
3: I will mention mm-hmm. it's not AWS for
0: all you hackers out there. <laughs> so one thing that I'm wondering about too here is what's your process when you write these guides? You know, this one, for example, you know, where we're talking about environment variables. What's your process for going through and determining what the best way to handle some of these situations are, because environment variables is a good example of this. There's some disagreement sometimes as to how to do Mm -hmm. it right. And so it feels a little bit, I don't know, I'd be a little nervous telling people, hey, this is the way that you ought to do it.
1: Right. Well, I do research. So I read a lot of articles that other people have written and see what they say. I look at the stack overflow answers, I look at my own experience, also for some articles, also try things different ways and see the results. So it's a combination of things that I then put together. So my my real work is doing the research and then synthesizing, putting together all of the research into something that makes sense.
4: Yeah, having done a bit of research on weekly content myself, it's it can be a time sink. One, to come up with new content, even if you have suggestions, you know. sometimes finding something that's going to be globally beneficial, but then also the research involved, especially if it's in a domain that you're unfamiliar with. So mm-hmm. kudos to you. At least I know how difficult and how much time that can consume.
2: Yeah. How did, you, uh, how did you find programming, and is the Ruby community pretty big out in Spain? Now, uh, my friend who lives in Spain says that the JavaScript community is, is really big, but I'd like to hear more about what it's like out there as a Ruby developer and how you got started.
1: Sure. Well, I found programming, like I said in introduction, when I was about 10 years old, maybe a little earlier, like nine or eight, I don't remember the exact age, but it was very early. And I got uh, my first computer, is what it was an Amstrad 486, and we typed that out, Amstrad 486. Did it have a turbo button? The next computer I got after that had a turbo button. This one, it, it was with cassettes, so cassettes, It, it just cassettes, not even floppy disk. It it just cassettes for if you wanted to put something in a program took five minutes to load. So I had like uh, games, uh, but only like text games. And you put the cassette, (laughs) it took like five minutes to, to just to load the program from the cassette. So this computer, it came with a manual which I think I still have somewhere. And this manual, it was a programming manual. Uh, it was basic. The it said, um, programming language basic. And I just read this manual. I follow the instructions. I just type in the code that you had in the example. And I end up making a little game, the breakout game. This one that has this um, thing and you have to keep a ball from falling down, right? And I really, really enjoyed that. You can just type some text and transform that into something happening in the, in the screen. I found that fascinating. So from there, I decided that I really wanted to learn more about that. And that's how I got started. Then I was, your question of Ruby in Spain. Well, we have some Ruby on Rails going on in Barcelona, which is close to where I live. I, li- I live in Lleida. And Barcelona is uh, one of the biggest cities in Spain and there is some Ruby on Rails going on in there. But in general, in, in Spain, I think... PHP and Java and C Sharp are a bit more popular overall. Are there Ruby meetups where you live? Not really. I think there used to be a conference, Barcelona Ruby Conference, but then they made that into a multi-language conference, like three years ago. So it was Ruby, I don't remember the exact name of the conference, but if you search for Barcelona Ruby conference, you might be be able to find that, but it doesn't longer exist because they made it into a multi-language conference then. So that's the only thing that I know is going on over here. In terms of meetups, I don't think there is much going on. Maybe there is one because one of the main Rails contributors is uh, called Xavier Noria is Spanish, so I think he does something. But in my city, there is nothing specific for Rubén. It's not like I live in a big city or anything, but still, if you want something for Rubén in Spain, I think Barcelona is probably the, the place to go.
4: You haven't been to Barcelona in almost 20 years. It's
2: been a while. They still speak Spanish there, right? <laughs>
3: You're bringing up bad memories from college. Why? I was not, I was never gifted at speaking Spanish and I tried so hard. I just never, it never clicked in my brain.
1: Es fácil, es fácil.
3: It's easy. So, I'm assuming
4: English is your second language, Jesus. So what is it like programming in a language that's not your native?
1: Well, that's interesting. I like English because it allows me to connect to a wider audience, right? And a lot of um, programming material is written in English and the documentation is in English. So I don't have... I, I like it. I really got used to it, and I don't know. Uh, and some lately, I know some words in English, and I don't remember the word in Spanish. So that's kind of funny. <laughs> I have to tell my brother, but uh, what, what, what's the word for that in in, in our language again? <laughs>
4: Yeah, I think that a lot of us take it for granted because we can sit down, start reading a book or start parsing through a language and it's in our native language, English already. So I think it's really impressive for others who it's basically learning a language off of your secondary language. Mm -hmm. So funny story, my dad, he's, um, you know, kind of fresh off the boat Japanese, so He's lived in America for 30 some odd years, but he was born and raised in Japan for most of his life. So we came to the United States. He came to the United States, met my mom, had us. And then we went over to Germany to live for a few years. And so we had to learn German, but they didn't have any Japanese to German courses. It was all English to German and German to English. So he was learning a third language off of his second language without using his native one. Needless to say, his German always sucked. It was never good. So, you know, just seeing that experience and then for you learning a different language, you know, Ruby from your secondary language is impressive.
1: Yeah, I feel like programming language is very different way to think that a spoken language because a mm-hmm. primary uh, language um, has the syntax and very specific roles and a spoken language is more flexible and there is ambiguity and words have different meaning and things like that. It's more flexible than programming language. The way you use it is also different. Yeah. So I, I never thought of it in that way like I'm learning a Another language, it's like different things for me. Cool.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. The other thing is, is if you screw up Ruby, your uh, interpreter is going to complain. But if you <laughs> yeah. screw up English, we're all going to go. I think I know what he meant. So <laughs> that's why we had the Did you mean gem? Right? Is there an actual? Oh, yeah,
4: name? yeah, it's included in the Rails core, or at least the gem is. Where if you accidentally actually, mis- actually-
1: type the name. Actually, it's including Ruby, not just Rails. Oh, OK, Ruby. Yeah. So. I really like that gem. when you mistype a method name or a class name, it, it tells you, Did you mean this? And it tries to auto correct you.
0: Yeah. <laughs> nice. Triplebyte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs. And this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash rogues. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. All right, well, let's go ahead and do some picks Dave, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure.
4: So my first pick is I was uh, spent the weekend watching the kids over at Micro Center again, and you know it's kind of our Saturday ritual to go there and you know then go to Chick Fil A and wear them out in the Playland. But I got a Satoshi mount, so it's a hub that will attach to your iMac or iMac Pro, and it just fits in the event slots right below it. So that way you get front side access to USB ports, SD card readers, and that kind of stuff. So it's a cool little device that I picked up. And then I've been having lower back pains for a few months now. So I got an inversion table and that worked, but I still sit a lot at my desk and my chair that I've been using had been, I think, worn out over the past five years. So I also picked up a Noble Chairs Epic. So that's it right there. It's been, it's actually really firm and pretty good lumbar support. So Noble Chairs Epic is my second
3: pick.
0: Nice. Andrew, what are your picks? So I spent part of the weekend
3: trying to get uh, Selenium tests working in Docker and did not work. But yeah, part of the problem, or not part of the problem, one of the things I ran into when I was researching running these tests in Docker was a gem called Docker Sync. Uh, I don't know about y'all, but sometimes I've run into the issue where my Docker container runs a little bit too slow. Sometimes trying to run commands takes just a little bit longer than I would like. So what this gem does is it helps speed up your development environment for using Docker. And I'm not sure if it's just the knowing that I have it or if it actually is running it faster, but it does seem to really speed up some of the processes that I was hoping it would. Nice. Eric, what are your picks?
2: Uh, I'm going to do a self-promotion today, I think. Uh, we recently launched with CodeFund a new tool called Codefund Jobs. And the whole goal with CodeFund Jobs is to be able to utilize our existing network of publishers to be able to bring um, the right jobs in front of the right people. Uh, One of the things that uh, businesses are looking for are those who are not necessarily actively looking for jobs, but who are highly qualified, who might be open to new opportunities. And because of that, CodeFund Jobs is an ideal place to place your job and get it in front of those developers. Now, we currently have over 300 jobs available all over the world, and we are running a, a, a promo right now to get people involved. But CodeFundJobs is at CodeFund.app jobs. Um, thanks for letting me self-promo.
0: Nice. All right, I'm going to do a couple of picks. So one, I just finished Skyward, which is the latest book by Brandon Sanderson, and I really enjoyed it. The complaint I have about Brandon Sanderson is that I'm waiting for the next Stormlight Archives book. I'm waiting for the next Mistborn book. I'm waiting for the next probably couple of other series that he writes book. And then he goes and he creates a new series that I also am now waiting for, another book in that series. So the guy is awesome writer and prolific, but finish some of these stories for me, please. Anyway, it it was a really good book. I got it on Audible and I enjoyed that. One other thing that I'm going to pick, and uh, this is something that I picked up at CES. And I picked it up. I actually went to Best Buy and, and bought it. And I picked it up because I needed something a little bit nicer than what I had to get the job done. So I, I wound up picking up a Canon EOS camera. Now, it's not the most expensive one. I think it was, what, five or $600. And it came with one zoom lens, which is plenty for me to shoot some videos with. It's a handheld camera. It's not a camcorder style camera, but uh, it does really well. And then the other thing that I needed that I, I just wasn't getting out of the equipment I had was it had an external audio input that I could use to hook up a boom mic to it. And so I picked up the Rode. It's just a directional mic. And so if I have the camera pointing at me, the Rode is also pointing at me and I don't have to have one that's right by my face so you can hear me. I recorded a bunch of videos at CES and then I also have recorded some of the DevRev. I quit doing those live because nobody was showing up and it was just nice to be able to set the camera up on the tripod and go for it. So I'm really digging that and enjoying it. So I'll put links to both of those in the show notes, probably on Amazon, not necessarily uh, Best Buy, but I'll I'll make sure that I get the right model on there so that you can see what I got and then you can go watch the videos and decide if that's what you want to. So uh, yeah, I'll pick those. Jesus, hey what are your picks?
1: Sure. Um, I have some gems that I like. For example, Breakman is a gem that allows you to find security problems with your race application so that we produce a report. Uh, it tells you if you have any security problems like SQL injection or cross-site scripting. Then another gem that I like is, is called acts as list so it's acts underscore as underscore list and it's a gem that you can include in a rails model it allows you to sort it like a list so you can rank it one two three four five and what i really like about this gem is that when you have to reorder the list it, it will take care of everything so let's say that i want to reorder from position three to to become the first. Well, the gem, you just have to tell it, there is a method for that. And if we move everything in the right position, so we reorder the whole list so that the third element becomes the first and the other get the proper ranking. So that's access list. Another gem I like is called Awesome Print. And Awesome Print, you can include in Pry or IRB and it enhances, improves your output, and it gives you colors, and it gives you some output improvements, so your hashes, your classes, your arrays look nicer in the output of IRB or Pry. And I would also like to mention my Ruby book, which is called Ruby Deep Dive. Um, I have sold over 200 of those. Um, people like it because it helps you go over the beginner phases into more intermediate. Uh, it t- teaches you things like blocks, Ruby blocks, Lambdas, metaprogramming, which a lot of people ask me about learning metaprogramming. Well, I will send them to my book because I cover it there. I also teach about the numerable mo- module, which is very important And things like that. So everything that you need to know to go from more beginner, so just knowing variables and conditionals, loops, to more advanced Ruby, so you can become a better Ruby developer. So that's called Ruby Deep Dive. And you can find it in my website, rubyguides.com.
0: Awesome. We should ask you, where where do people find you online? You mentioned rubyguides.com, but... Uh, yes, I'm, I'm assuming you're on Twitter and GitHub and things like that, too.
1: Yes, I am. I'm actually, uh, everywhere I'm on Facebook, uh, just by my name, Jesus Castillo. Um On Twitter, my handle is um, matugm. So I write that down so you can put it in the show notes. It's matugm. That's my handle on Twitter. And I have the same handle on GitHub. So that's that. But the main site where you can find me is on my site, that's rubyguides.com. In there, you can find the, my book. You can find my uh, about page, which has all of these links to my profiles. Oh, and I also have the YouTube channel, which is just youtube.com slash Jesus Castello all together. So uh, there is the link, YouTube. Dot com slash Jesus Castilla.
0: Nice. All right. Well, thank you for coming and talking through this with us and also just talking about, you know, Rails guides and putting together awesome content for the Ruby community.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up and we will be back next week.
1: All right. See y'all later. Bye, everyone.
0: Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.